So we're looking at the book of Judges and have been for a while. And one of the major themes in the book of Judges is that this book explores, have we got, is this on the, the thing? Is that working? Okay, cool, brilliant. Uh, is a, it's one of the major themes of the book of Judges is to explore the consequences of idolatry. Now, when we say the word idolatry, uh, for many of us, we think of that and in, images would conjure up, I suppose, of people bowing down to stone blocks or statues of deities, of uh, presumed deities of one sort or another. And that's certainly how it's portrayed in the book of Judges. And that's what happened then. Uh, and that's what he's talking into. But what happens is often then we distance ourselves from that and think, well, not many people are doing that nowadays. And I'm certainly not doing that. So then idolatry has nothing to do with me. And we've talked uh, at length in this book, uh, as we've gone through this book, about how that's, uh, that's not the case. We can't distance ourselves from idolatry like that. Because uh, what idolatry essentially is, is treating something as God that is not God. Uh, treating something as having ultimate value when it actually doesn't have ultimate value. And when we put it like that, I, I guess, uh, we can see that idolatry is as much of a problem today as it was then. It's as much of a problem here in Birmingham as it would be in other parts of the world. And it's something that affects all of us. And in this book, so far in the book of Judges, most of the consequences of idolatry have been external attacks on the people uh, of Israel. So what happens is the people fall into idolatry and then God raises up a, kind of an enemy to come and kind of show them the error of their ways. We've had, they've got a colourful bunch of names. We've had Cushan Rishathaim. We've had Eglon, king of Moab, a Canaanite king called Jabin, and a group of people called the Midianites. All have stepped up as a result, direct consequence of the people of Israel's uh, idolatry, but from outside of Israel attacking Israel. Okay. However, today in Judges chapter 9, which is where we'll be today, so if you want to turn to that, uh, you can, uh, we see a change that's been lurking in the background throughout the book and now is going to really take, uh, become the norm as the book uh, continues. Because it's a very similar situation to what we've seen. At the end of chapter 8, Gideon has died, and predictably, if you've been here for this series, this will be no surprise to you whatsoever. Uh, chapter 8, verses 33 to 34, it says, Gideon dies, and it says, Israel again prostituted themselves to the Baals. It's getting so predictable. They set up Baal Bereth as their God and did not remember the Lord their God. Okay, and so if you've read the book so far, you'll be like, we know what will happen. God will raise up some enemies, the Midianites or the Ammonites or the Philistines, and they'll come and get, get there. So who's God going to raise up as a consequence of their idolatry? Actually, no one. Well, no threat that is from outside of God's people. God's punishment for their idolatry is to let them destroy themselves. Now today what I'd like to look at is the infighting that kicks off in the people of Israel after the death of Gideon. And I really want to make a very simple plea to us here as uh, members of Church Central uh, in the West Side specifically here. I would simply like to ask us and plead with us that we don't let this sort of thing happen in our church and in our site. That's where everything is going uh, today. Now just to say, if you're a visitor with us today, if you're not a part of Church Central, uh, there will be some elements of this, church, this, meeting, uh, this talk sorry, uh, that may be a little more in-house than others. In the, I guess my focus is going to be for the church here uh, with a concern for us. Uh, however, it's not time to get your coat. Well, it is kind of time to get your coat because it's absolutely freezing. But in, in, in the sense of, oh, no, nothing for me. Because actually what we're going to look at here is some wisdom from God that whether you're a Christian or not here today, uh, that if you take this on board, I, I really uh, believe that God's wisdom for you can help you in the communities that you are part of as well. And if it's a case that you're today coming come here as a visitor, but looking and thinking, is this a church that I could be part of? Is this a community that I could join? Really what I want you to see today uh, is... 
I want to show you what kind of community we like to be, or probably more accurately, what kind of community we don't want to be, and maybe for you to, to ask you, would you come and help us in this? It's kind of a call for you. Come on, if you want to get involved with us, this is the sort of stuff we're about, okay? So let's get into it. Ready for a bit of uh, blood and guts and grizzle? <laughs> No, we're not. Well, sorry, you've come to the wrong sermon today then. Here we go. Um, let's, uh, let's, I'm just going to basically, I'm taking up the whole of chapter 9 and 10, so I'm going to jump in and out a, a bit. So if you want to follow on your Bible, do. There'll be some verses that can't, but I'm going to tell you a story. That, that's basically as faithfully as I can to the story in, in Scripture. Um, basically, what's happened? Gideon, he's the last judge we looked at before Church Central won last week, and he's died, okay? And he's left behind him uh, 70 children. Now, one of the kids is a guy called uh, Abimelech. He's uh, uh, a guy called Abimelech, and he's the son of Gideon's concubine, okay? Not the son of one of his wives. That's going to become important in a while. And Abimelech goes to a place called Shechem, and uh, he, Shechem is the place where Gideon's mum, the concubine of uh, sorry, Abimelech's mum, the concubine of Gideon, uh, was from. And so he goes to the people of Shechem and goes, Guys, I'm family. You knew my mum. Let's do a deal. You don't want all of Gideon's other sons. These are 69 guys leading over you. I will rule over you. You know, you know me. You know my mum. We're kin. That sort of thing. Pick it up in verse 3 of chapter 9. This is what they say. After listening to this proposal, the people of Shechem decided in favor of Abimelech because he was their relative. That's a blunder. That's their first mistake of many, as you'll see. They gave him 70 silver coins from the temple of Barbereth, which he used to hire some reckless troublemakers who agreed to follow him. Okay? <laughs> the, 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 the writer's not really mincing his words. Interesting, reckless troublemakers. He's not really for Abimelech. You'll see why as time goes on. Now, this is an immensely poor decision from the people of Shechem, but we shouldn't miss something important here that's gone on. Notice where they pay him from. Okay? They go, we want to pay you for something. Where should we get the money? Oh, we'll go to our temple. Oh, you mean the temple of Yahweh? The, that's the God of Israel, isn't it? No, in Shechem, which is a key Israelite city, now idolatry is so rife, there is not, the temple is not representing Yahweh there. It's representing uh, Barbareth. The, the idolatry is absolutely sunk in. It's not boding well, if you've read the story up to this point, and it immediately bodes even worse. Okay, Verse 5, uh, he went to his father's home at Ophrah, and there on one stone they killed all 70 of his half-brothers, the sons of Gideon. But the youngest brother, Jotham, escaped and hid. Okay, You might have thought at this point that the people of Shechem would have seen this monstrous act and thought, wait a minute, hold on, this guy's a psycho. We don't want him to rule over us. Apparently the opposite was the case. They saw this as a sign of very decisive leadership. We like this guy. He's decisive. He's an alpha male. It's good. We'll have him. And so uh, in verse 6 it says, Then all the leading citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo called a meeting under the oak beside the pillar at Shechem and made Abimelech their king. Okay? Um, now this appalling act, though, was not gone unnoticed. It might have been honoured by the leading citizens of Shechem. But um, the one that got away, Jotham, you might have spotted him, the brother who escaped, comes back. And he's a little cheesed off with the whole thing. And he presents, he, he, he confronts both the people of Shechem and Abimelech. And he confronts them in a quite unusual way. He confronts them by telling them a story. Now, this is written a very long time ago. And there's something of a cultural divide between us and this story that, for me, makes this seem like a piece of surrealism. Just so you know, well, this story is really odd. And if you feel a bit lost, don't worry. It's okay. We'll try to, we, I think we can get the main things out. But this is how Jotham decides to confront Abimelech and the people of Shechem. Verse 7. When Jotham heard about this, he climbed to the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted, 
Listen to me, citizens of Shechem. Listen to me if you want God to listen to you. Once upon a time, the trees decided to choose a king. First they said to the olive tree, be our king. But the olive tree refused, saying, should I quit producing the olive oil that blesses both God and people, just to wave back and forth over the trees? Then they said to the fig tree, you be our king. But the fig tree also refused, saying, Should I quit producing my sweet fruit just to wave back and forth over the trees? Then they said to the grapevine, You be our king. But the grapevine also refused, saying, Should I quit producing the wine that cheers both God and people just to wave back and forth over the trees? Then all the trees finally turned to the thornbush and said, Come, you be our king. And the thornbush replied to the trees, if you truly want to make me your king, come and take shelter under my shade. If not, let fire come out from me and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Jotham continued, now make sure you have acted honorably and in good faith by making Abimelech your king and that you have done right by Gideon and all of his descendants. Have you treated him with the honor he deserved for all he accomplished? No, for he fought for you and risked his life when he rescued you from the Midianites. But today you have revolted against my father and his descendants, killing his 70 sons on one stone. And you have chosen his slave woman's son, Abimelech, to be your king just because he is your relative. If you have acted honorably, massive if, and in good faith towards Gideon and his descendants today, then may you find joy in Abimelech and may he find joy in you. But if you have not acted in good faith, then may fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leading citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and may fire come out from the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo and devour Abimelech. Now, like I say, I, I don't know about you, but this is one of those stories in the Bible I'm like, wow, I, I just wouldn't communicate. Like That's unusual. Okay, but if you got a bit lost with the fire and the trees and the thorn bushes and the stuff, I think if we focus on thorn bushes, I think we can get the main stuff. Okay, just think three things about a thorn bush from this story. Okay. Thornbushes are useless. That's the first thing we need to know, okay? Abimelech is the thornbush in the story. Did you catch that? He's the thornbush, okay? They're useless. Um, Grapevines, uh, what's the other one? Olive oil, and well, just want to say about figs. I ate figs. I think they're horrible. Does they, what, do people like figs? Are we a fig site? Okay, yeah, it's good. Does anyone have very strong feelings positively for figs? Okay, whoa, okay. Right, I don't like figs, but, you know, I'll go with you guys on it. It's fine. They have a use, you know. Um, they kind of help your digestive system, don't they? That's a use. But I think that some people like tasting them. But thorn bushes have no use except to scratch you. They're completely useless. So he's, it's a big diss of Abimelech on one level. However, secondly, it's a very specific diss on what they're asking him to do. Because not only are thorn bushes useless, they are particularly useless for what the people of Shechem need them for, which is as summed up here. Uh, the thorn bush says, Come and take shelter in my shade. I think that's a fair representation of a thornbush. I'm not sure they provide a whole lot of shade, if I'm being completely honest. I'm not sure they even have leaves, okay? So not only are they useless, they're useless specifically at the things they're looking for. And another thing about thornbushes, uh, which is worth noting and links to the slightly kind of strange end to the story, is they're also a complete fire hazard <laughs> in, a, in a dry, hot climate like, uh, like would have been here, okay? They, they, they kind of get around everywhere and they link up kind of tree here, bushes here, and then thornbushes everywhere. If they would just combust and burn everything down, okay, that's how things went, okay, and that kind of links to the kind of curse at the end that then this is going to end badly. Fire is going to come out from Abimelech the thornbush to the cedars, people of Shechem, and then it's going to bounce back and take the thornbush as well, okay. Do you get the idea? They're going to destroy each other. That's the, that's the idea, okay. 
And funnily enough, that is exactly what happens. Imagine, screen fades to black, three years later appears, okay? And we'll pick it up in verse 22. After Abimelech had ruled over Israel for three years, God sent a spirit that stirred up trouble between Abimelech and the leading citizens of Shechem, and they revolted. Okay, this spirit of trouble between Abimelech and Shechem starts reasonably small scale. In verse 25, it says this, The citizens of Shechem set an ambush for Abimelech on the hilltops and robbed everyone who passed that way. But someone warned Abimelech about their plot. Just to be clear here, I don't think they were waiting for Abimelech himself. I think what's happened here, some rogues have got together to kind of to like cause some trouble so they can then say, Abimelech can't even keep law and order in his own city. What a useless ruler, let's get another one. That's kind of, it's, it's kind of high-level mischief going on, okay? Um, but soon it gets slightly worse. There's this guy, a guy called Gaal, who's an upstart from a neighboring town or country. He comes into town, and the way the story is portrayed, it's he, he comes to the tavern <laughs> one evening, or the pub, or however you want to see it, and he's having a drink with his mates, and he starts mouthing off about Abimelech. He's like, hey, who runs this place anyway? Hey, get me another lager. Okay, and uh, the, more, the more he seems to drink, the more he's like, Abimelech, I could have him. Oh, come on, give me Abimelech, I'll take him. I could rule this place. And everyone's like, whoa, get him another lager, okay? And um, it, it says that the leading citizens of Shechem are in the pub, and um, they're as loyal to Abimelech as they've been to uh, Gideon before him, I, I think. And they're like, this sounds great. And you imagine they have this boozy evening in the pub, kind of, uh, which I would never know anything about, not being an alcoholic, Mr. Tumnus. Okay, uh, but, but they do that. And imagine they go home for the evening and go, that was fun, wasn't it? Wake up the next morning thinking everything's okay. Problem is, Bimelech's heard what's gone on in the tavern that evening, and he's not very happy about it. So he comes and he drives Gaal out of town with all his cronies, okay, which you'd have thought, probably fair enough. Now, I'd like to think, and I might be wrong, but I'd like to think if I was in Abimelech's shoes here, I'd be seeing some warning signs about my kind of, kind of stewardship of my people going on here. They're setting up ambushes on hills. They're following these kind of drunken upstarts. Okay, I'd be thinking maybe it might be time to bend, uh, build some bridges, mend some bridges, you know, I don't know, lower taxes, give out free donuts. I, I don't know, whatever it might be uh, to kind of change the mood. Does Abimelech do that? No, he doesn't do that. He does completely the opposite of that and thinks, I've got rid of Gaal, what next? Well, I'll tell you what I'll do now. These lot, cheeky lot, I'm going to show them. He destroys their entire city. He raises Shechem to the ground, killing a whole load of its inhabitants. Now, it turns out that the only place to hide in Shechem uh, was the temple of Baal Bereth that we mentioned earlier. So a load of them kind of get get in there as a, a last resort Um, to kind of hide away. But the problem is, there is no hiding from the wrath of a crazed Abimelech, okay? And he comes up with a plan. Uh, Verse uh, verse 48. Abimelech took an axe and chopped some branches from a tree, then put them on his shoulder. Quick, do as I have done, he told his men. So each of them cut down some branches, following Abimelech's example. They piled the branches against the walls of the temple and set them on fire. So all the people who had lived in the Tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. Done and dusted, thank goodness. Vengeance is complete. So Abimelech went home and kind of had a nice sleep, met three ghosts in the night, changed his ways and stopped being such a pain. Okay. Unfortunately, that's a different story. No, Abimelech, what does he do? He decides he's got a taste for this vengeance stuff. And as vengeance often does, it spills out of control a little bit. And so the next verse is this. Then Abimelech attacked the town of Thebes 
and captured it. What's the reason for attacking the town of Thebes? Uh, absolutely none, as far as we can gather. He's just got a taste for vengeance. He wants to show people who's the boss. And so he attacks this seemingly innocent town next door as well. Um, and they also flee into a tower. But he thinks, I've got a plan. I, I know how to do this. I'm good at getting people out of towers. Uh, he, he kind of forgets the whole fire thing that was going on in Jotham's curse. That he seems to have forgotten we'll come back to get him at some point. But anyway, we'll see what happens to that in a second. Verse 51. This is what happens in Thebes. But there was a strong tower inside the town, and all the men and women, the entire population, fled to it. They barricaded themselves in and climbed up to the roof of the tower. Abimelech followed them to attack the tower, but as he prepared to set fire to the entrance, the scheme that worked before, a woman on the roof dropped a millstone that landed on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. There we have, I know it's hard to see, but there's a, a photo from the time taken of uh, Abimelech having his skull crushed. Um, Okay, so Jotham's curse has played out. Let's follow it all through. Fire from the thorn bush, that is Abimelech, has devoured the cedars of Lebanon, that's the people of Shechem, and fire, in this case, a rock from the cedars of Lebanon, in this case, the people of Thebes, has devoured or more literally brained the thorn bush, which is Abimelech. Everyone got that? Good? Yep. Not quite clear. So luckily, the writer sums it up a bit better than that for us. Verse 56. In this way, God punished Abimelech for the evil he had done against his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also punished the men of Shechem for all their evil. So the curse of Jotham, son of Gideon, was fulfilled. And there we have the sorry tale of Abimelech. If you throw in a couple of dragons and some idealistic and unhelpful sex scenes, that would be on Sky Atlantic. Lots of viewers for that as well. However, the question we need to ask really is, what on earth is it doing in the Bible? I mean, why did God let this story in? What does this story teach us today? And I think I want to draw out four things I notice from this story that I think can help us uh, today. And just to flag up straight away, the first one's the biggie, okay? There's wisdom in two, three, and four, but the first one's the biggie. And the first one is this. The first thing we notice, and I think we've got to notice and then think through, is this hostility that's in this passage, this infighting, is a direct punishment from God. This is not just the result of some political things and people falling out. It's a direct punishment from God. And we see that in verses 23 and 24. And it says this, God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem. So why? Why does God stir up this hostility here? Well, the immediate reason that's given us is because uh, the obviously important matter, these guys had conspired to kill 70 people, innocent people who are Gideon's uh, children. But as we've already noticed, there is a bigger reason underlying all that's going on here. And the reason that actually all of this is happening is wider. And it's the thing I've flagged up already. What's the reason for God's punishment here? Well, the reason is idolatry. All that happens here is a direct result of the people abandoning God and worshipping idols. And as I said at the beginning, we've seen in this series a number of consequences of idolatry. Well, here we see another one. The consequence of idolatry flagged up here is that where idolatry continues rife in a group of people, disharmony and infighting will always be just around the corner. And that was true in communities in the Old Testament and God's people, and that's true in churches today. Let's, I just want to look at this from a completely different angle, from a different part of the Bible. In the New Testament, there's a book called 1 John that I think teaches this kind of from the other way around, uh, really. So just for, for a minute, let's, I just want to kind of sum up some teachings in, in 1 John for you. 1 John is a letter, uh, funnily enough, written by 
You guys are sharp. Very, very good. Okay. Uh, it's written by John, and it has a simple message. It's only a four or five chapters long, uh, and the, the message really is that we should love each other. It's kind of seems to be quite consistently throughout the, the, the book. But um, as well as encouraging us to do that, John also gives us a background, a framework by which to do that. And so it's in 1 John that we have the magnificent revelation that God, it's not just that God does love, it's, love's just not a verb that God does, God is love. It's in 1 John uh, 4 verse 8 and 4 verse 16, he tells us God is love. Wow, okay, God's love. And then he goes on to say, it's not just that God is love, what, what is love though? What, what is that word? Well, we understand that from what God did for us when he came down as, as the person of his son and died on a cross. So not only is God love, but he gives us the perfect demonstration of love. And from that foundation then, he says again and again, 1 John 3, 11, we should love one another. 1 John 4, 7, let us love one another. 1 John 4, 21, whoever loves God must also love his brother. And on and on and on, okay? So let me ask you, if you were ending your letter, this all about love, how might you end? What might be your last uh, thing? I, I'd put uh, all the best Johnny, but they didn't seem to do that in those days. What would be your final uh, gambit? Could be, hey, one last thing, everyone, just in case you didn't notice, love, okay? <laughs> Love's great. Love people. It's not how he does it. The last line comes as a, a kind of surprise to us unless we see what we're talking about today. Love, 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 love is the letter. Last word, verse of 1 John, what is it? It says this, Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols. What is John's point? Surely John's point is this. If we continue to worship idols, if we continue to put other things at the center of our lives that are not God, we are not going to be able to love one another. And our communities actually will not be places that model and radiate the love of Jesus. You know, I think, well, why? That's right. what's the link between love and idols? Well, his logic holds completely. John's logic's very strong here. You know, remember his logic? He said, well, why should we love people? Well, because God is love, and God has demonstrated to us the perfect model of love. You know what? If this God like that is at the center of your life, you will be loving too. However, other gods are not the same as this. We've got to recognize this. If we make money our God, we've got to know that money is a God and knows no love. It drives us to possessiveness and selfishness at every turn. We make power and position and reputation our gods. Those gods know no love. They drive you to climb a ladder and kick in the face anybody who would dare to try to overtake you. They know no love. If you make family your god, what happens? Well, actually, even that, that knows no love. There might be some love in your nuclear family. You might kind of think, oh, this is in our family. We're very loving. But what happens is that's love at the expense of those outside of the family, not loving your family so that you love others. Even that, God knows no love. And sex, that God knows no love. I think that's a strange thing to say. It's like synonymous, isn't it? Sex and making love. That's, those are the phrases. Well, if sex becomes your God, actually it's very different because it becomes, basically sex becomes a means to fulfill your emotional needs at other people's expense. becomes about your pleasure. actually becomes about owning and possessing other people. That sort of chat that I think among lads is more common of, I had her. That's all possessiveness. That's how sex becomes. And it's always then just tossing others to the side when you've done with them. That God knows no love. We become what we worship. 
How do you realize that? Well, these songs we sing, and we go, Jesus, we worship you. As we worship, not just about singing songs, about in our lives too, we become what we worship. We become the gods that we serve, much more than the songs, the decisions we make uh, revolving around what's at the center of our lives. We become those gods. God is love. If you want to love others, put God at the center of your life. Keep yourself from idols. If we want our church to be a place of love and peace and harmony and upbuilding, we must warn each other and teach each other and encourage each other and come alongside each other to say, no, keep yourself from idols. I'm trying my hardest. It's hard. Can you try and help me? It's absolutely vital. Because if we get this one right, whatever you think of my next three points, we will not end up in the sort of mess the Israelites did in the time of Abimelech. And if we get this one wrong, we will end up in the sort of situation they have in the time of Abimelech. Like I said, I think this is the, the big one today to take away. Yet, there are also some practical things I think that would be foolish to miss in this passage that we can throw up uh, too because there's a number of bits of wisdom that we see knitted in here that God gives us to help us avoid the kind of infighting we see here. So let's turn, to, let's rattle through them. They're shorter than the first one, okay? Uh, firstly then, um, we should keep ourselves from idols. It was, it was, um, this is a direct punishment for idolatry, what's going on here. Secondly, we should not try to become the king, that is, seems to be in this story, okay? So interesting, Abimelech is the only one of Israel's rulers in the book of Judges who puts himself forward to be the ruler, okay? All the other guys, even some of the other ones that are a bit duff, okay, they are raised up by God or other people suggest them. Abimelech is the one who aggressively throws his name into the hat, okay? And he doesn't just want to be a judge either. Notice, he's a king. That word's completely out of place in Judges, really. This, this is not a time of kings, they, but he puts himself forward as the king and they make him a king, okay? Kings is later in the history. And the point's being made here that he's really pushing himself forward to a position really he shouldn't have been looking for. Now, for us, it, it's, this is difficult for us because there'll be many in this room, I, I would imagine, who'd have a sense of a calling to lead things. And it might be that uh, for you, you always think, I, you know what, I think I could, I could do that. I could, I could lead. I could, I could do, take that position of leadership that somebody's doing. I might be able to do a better job, you know. Or you, another way that uh, shows itself is that when others lead you, there's that kind of thing in your heart. Mm, actually, I'm finding this hard, even if I'm doing it, because I know I've got this feeling that I should be doing this. And surely that could be a good thing, couldn't it? The Bible says it's, it's a good thing to kind of uh, want to lead rightly among God's people. So how do we work out those two things? And there's a much, much more than we could say on this, but I just want to give a very simple uh, uh, kind of test. And I say simple, it's simple in to say it's very difficult for us to be honest with ourselves enough for this, but I would encourage you uh, to do that. Here's the test. If you want to use your God-given gifts to serve others and genuinely help people, I think that is a good calling to leadership. However, if you simply want to be the boss, and really it comes from a, I want people to listen to me. I want my moment in the sun. It's not fair that I'm not there. Well, actually, that's trying to be king. And that's, if you, if you get what you want, that will cause chaos. And I'd encourage you, those who, who kind of, kind of think, am I called to be leadership, to come humbly before God and say, look, what's here in me? Just so you know, if you see the second, that's not a disqualification forever, but that would be a case, I need to be cautious here. God help me, because Jesus taught, we don't lead, we don't lord it over others like the leaders we see around. The leader's job is to serve. 
Okay? So we shouldn't try to be king. That's another thing we see from this story. Thirdly, uh, is this one. And this is a tricky one, actually. Um, genuine grievances are no excuse for how we respond to them. Genuine grievances are no excuse for how we respond to them. I know Abimelech is like the stereotypical baddie in this. Way. Everything is bad about this guy. But we've got to recognize that this guy probably did have some genuine grievances in his past, particularly, I'd say, against his brothers. Okay? And we see a little touch of it in uh, Jotham's speech. He says this, he says, And you have chosen his slave woman's son, Abimelech, to be your king. Now, can't be too tough on Jotham, you know. He's right to be a little miffed with, her, with Abimelech here. He has just killed all his brothers and tried to kill him. Okay? It, there's a kind of spitefulness there that comes through, which I imagine, it doesn't seem like this is the first time anyone's said to Abimelech, you're the slave woman's son. Okay? We all know, don't we? You don't diss someone's mum. Basic rule of modern manners. <laughs> Mums are off, they're off limits. Okay? Uh, they, do, they go for it. Okay? You know, it's his slave woman's son. And uh, actually... It's kind of true. He was not the son of one of Gideon's wives, son of a concubine. He was, in some ways, the runt of the litter, the cuckoo in the nest would have been how he'd be seen. In the Bible, uh, where there's this practice of having wives and concubines, okay, which gladly dies out as the Old Testament goes on, uh, what, if there's a child uh, from the concubine, almost universally that child is, is kind of picked on, bullied, and abused by the other siblings. Okay? That's just how it goes. And the implication would be that that's exactly what's happening here. For you here today, you too might have genuine grievances. And you might even have genuine grievances against people in our church. You might even have genuine grievances about people who are sitting in this room right today. People might have been deliberately mean to you. Or maybe it's just an unthinking insensitivity. But actually, in both cases, those things can hurt just as badly as each other. And and it could be pointed to you like as an individual but it could be pointed to you as a part of the group that you represent. Could be because of your race. Could be because uh, of your gender, of where you live, of your class, of a, a disability that you have. Look, I want to be really clear on this. I, I'm in no way trying to lessen the pain of those things or say that the things that have been done to you or are still being done to you are okay. I'm not saying that at all. But having said that, I think this story is a stark reminder that the fact we've been wronged does not take away our responsibility regarding how we respond to those wrongs. Most little things, they might might niggle at you a little bit. They might just always be in the background. They might be very big for you. It's possible that you just don't speak to that person anymore because of it or feel you carry this thing with you the whole time. Okay? However, we see in the story of Abimelech a very real example of what can happen if we carry those things and let them fester and eat away at us. What's really helpful about the Bible is the Bible doesn't just show us how not to deal with wrongs. It also shows us how to positively do it as well. And in the Old Testament, there is a story that I think we can put next to the story of Abimelech very helpfully that tells us how to do things positively. Okay? And it's the story of a guy called Joseph. But I'm sure many of us would know, but I wonder if you spotted the similarities in the stories. Joseph was one of the youngest of the, the, the brothers, and uh, it was said quite clearly in Genesis 37, 4, 4, it says, his brothers hated him and couldn't say a kind word to him. Doesn't sound like an entirely pleasant family environment. 
Of course, there is the whole well being sold to slavery thing as well. So Joseph, you know, he had a really genuine cause for grievance against his brothers. So what does he do? What Joseph does is he trusts God and he, he decides in his heart, I am not going to let the treatment that my brothers have done to me define my destiny. I'm going to put myself in God's hands. And where does that lead, to him, lead him to go? It leads him to forgive his brothers. He wrestles with it. It's not easy for him, but he comes to a place of forgiveness. What is the result of Joseph's forgiveness? The result is this. His whole family are saved from starvation and God's purposes leap hugely forward in his lifetime as the descendants of Abraham are given a place to stay and to grow. Again, just to repeat, I'm not saying that how people have treated you or are treating you is okay, but I do want to ask you this. What do you want your legacy to be? Would you like to be an Abimelech or would you like to be a Joseph? The Bible is actually very clear that the first step to becoming a Joseph is always forgiveness. You might reply and say, well, that's okay, but like, does that mean I just forgive and just let it continue? Let people keep patronizing me, overlooking me, abusing me, bullying me. Actually, no, not at all. Jesus was incredibly practical about this. Okay? He gave very practical instructions of how to deal with this sort of thing. Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 17, Jesus tells you exactly what to do. He says, if your brother sins against you, what do you do? You go to them and tell them what they've done, how you feel about it. Let's just pause on that for a second. Okay? There's wisdom here that, that runs very deep for our generation today. I think in our world, we sometimes look at the Bible and think, well, they didn't have to deal with lots of stuff we've got today. It's a different world to today. But this wisdom is very important for a generation like ours that has all sorts of methods of communication. Okay? If Jesus was here today, he wouldn't say, go, go onto your phone and WhatsApp the person to tell them how you feel about them. Okay? We, we can't just transfer it like that. No, his wisdom's there. You go to the person. Okay? It's not write a letter. They would have been able to do that. It's go to the person. I, I just want to kind of urge you guys on this I, I think uh, with social media and new forms of communication sometimes we can apply this sort of stuff but do it kind of half and it causes more trouble than doing nothing okay and by half I mean we don't go to the person we kind of go halfway of like a text or, or a Facebook message or WhatsApp is the main culprit I think here in my experience I have never seen anyone confront behavior in someone on WhatsApp and it go well I just want to be, be clear with that okay I've got no biblical verse do not use WhatsApp for this but I think this verse would be the closest I go I, I would plead with you I, I want to make a point of this please don't put fuel on the fire with stuff like that no what does Jesus say go to the person well, it seems unfair doesn't it it seems they've wronged me why am I having to go out of my way and do something that takes a lot of grace a lot of courage but that's how the Bible teaches about relationships. We're the wronged, the ones who have been wronged take the effort to make things right. Okay, it's what God did. God was wronged by us. Did he just kind of text some message out? Did he even just send a Bible? No, he didn't. He came in the person of his son to us. We need to be very similar in how we deal with relationships. But you might say, well, what happens if they don't do anything? Well, Jesus goes on. He says, look, eventually, if they still don't listen, you go to the leaders of the church, okay? And we, we deal with, we come and try to help with that because this is so important. But please, with all this, we do it from a place of forgiveness, not from a place of bitterness. Now, guys, I'm not saying this is easy stuff. I'm really not. And some stuff that people, we often do unthinking to others really hurts them. And for some of you, that would be the, the, the case. You're living with that. And it's not easy. But it's very, very important.
So please, I think this passage treats, teaches us the genuine grievances are no excuse for how we respond. Let's round up and finish with just the final uh, point, which I think just underlines again, which I've tried to do throughout the urgency of this sort of stuff, is the final thing I think we see in this passage is that the infighting has a strange tendency to escalate, okay? You can almost see him. Some of you know what that picture's about. Um, infighting has a tendency to en- escalate. Um, in this story, and actually the whole book of Judges, we see this kind of escalation of hostilities. I think we see three ways here. Remember, Abimelech's brothers, we, we're kind of assuming a little bit, but I think it's fair. They were mean to Abimelech. So what happens? He kills them all. That's what I would call escalation of hostilities. Okay, 101 right there. Okay. But then it continues again. Abimelech's feud with the people of Shechem starts reasonably innocuously. A few guys on the hills causing some trouble, making Abimelech look bad. How does it end? Abimelech raising their whole town to the ground, killing a thousand of them, then attacking another place. That is escalation of hostilities. Okay, it's, it's massive. Okay. Also, the whole book of Judges, though, points in this direction. If we step back for a second and look at how this book is now going to pan out, okay, we'll see this happening again. Okay, let's just look at it in terms of numbers. In this passage, we're talking at least 1,000 killed through infighting. Probably 2,000. Uh, so we'll give it, we'll it 2,000, okay? Okay, next judge, a guy called Jephthah. I'll call him Jeff for the moment because I think that sounds nice. Okay, uh, Jeff uh, or Jephthah, um, he gets into a fight with the tribe of Ephraim, another tribe in Israel, and he ends up killing 42,000 of those guys. No, no baddies involved here. It's just Jephthah killing 42,000 Israelites, okay? So from 2,000 to 42,000. Last three chapters of Judges um, contains barbarism of the sort we haven't come close to yet. Uh, just so you know, and I'm sorry if we've wussed out here, uh, we're not going to be preaching on that. And uh, that's because it would land on Christmas Eve, that sermon. <laughs> and uh, I think we're hardcore uh, getting to Judges at all, but we're not that hardcore. So that will be a blog, and I'd recommend reading it when the mince pies and general festivity has subsided, okay? But it, one of the things that happens at the end of Judges is this terrible civil war in which all of the, the 11 tribes gang up on the tribe of Benjamin and almost completely wipe out the whole tribe, leaving 600 left. In that conflict, 65,000 people are killed. Listen, guys, the, the fire that went out from Abimelech and Shechem didn't burn itself out. It became a forest fire that almost consumed the entire nation. And that's how unresolved conflict still works within the people of God. Please, guys, will we not let that sort of thing happen here? I know that many of us would have all sorts of concerns about the future of the church and the future of Christianity uh, in our day and age. Uh, And uh, it might be kind of social trends or changing moral norms or even the advance of other religions and things like that, you know, and we're concerned what's going to happen. We've got to notice this, though. In the book of Judges, they had genuine external concerns, yet they weren't the problem. If they got through the book of Judges with just Midianites, Philistines, and all of them, the people of Israel would have come out of this book smelling of roses. Now, what was her biggest enemy? Her biggest enemy turned out to be herself. There's probably for you not a whole lot you can actually do to stem the tide of secularism in Western society. I know we're all told that we can change the world. Actually, on your own, you probably can't stem that much. You probably can't uh, halt the national rejection of biblical values on, their own, on your own. We pray, you know what? God equips us, but there's only so much we can do. What you can do, and what you have a massive part in, is guard your relationships in the church. And that is, at the very least, just as important. 
If you're still not convinced, I just want to leave you with what the New Testament says about this stuff. I just want to read it to you. I'm going to read a selection of verses. You won't be able to see them very well up there, but trust me, they're all there. I just want you to feel this. This is not something that has gone away and stopped being a problem. Listen to what the New Testament says. Put off dissension and jealousy. If you suddenly remember that someone has something against you, go and be reconciled to that person. Blessed are those who work for peace. Honor one another above yourselves. Let us aim for harmony in the church and try to build each other up. Do all that you can, do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember, the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. But now is the time to get rid of anger, rage, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Let everything you say be good and helpful so that your words will be an encouragement to those who hear them. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Instead, be kind to each other, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God through Christ has forgiven you. Most important of all, continue to show deep love for each other, for love covers a multitude of sins. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. And finally, and I think most importantly, dear children, keep yourself from idols.